initiation ceremony at the time of initiation, it's always very inspiring and everything seems very rosy and golden and the future is yours, but then years go by and different challenges come up. So what are some tips to maintain our enthusiasm and our dedication to our vows as the years go by? Could you all hear that? She said when we take initiation, uh, the future seems bright and we're optimistic and she used the word rosy. And then how do we keep going when we meet with obstacles on the path? And one of the ways is to collect mentors. When you have mentors to help you, then you're following the path of those who are great, or at least really good in every discipline. Because whomever it is who's taking to some kind of a endeavor that's going to require instruction, guidance, pep talks, uh, always has coaches around him or her. And so Gaudiya Vaishnavism is a culture of guidance. I collect mentors myself when I find in someone something that I appreciate deeply, some steadiness or some specific learning they, they've acquired then I go out of my way to approach them humbly and ask for their association on an ongoing basis. So when that happens, or when anything comes up that seems confusing, frustrating, or seems like an obstacle, then I've already cultivated uh, friendships or mentorships, me as a mentee, with the, those types of people. And that's uh, very, very helpful. So. Don't be afraid to make such uh, connections as needed to make advancement. Yes? Um, I'd like to know the significance of, she saw Pranahi collecting the ashes, and she's just wondering about that. What happens after is you take the ashes from the fire and you mix it with a little ghee and then you put a little dot on your head. And that way, when you go to the supermarket, everyone will say, hey, what is that? And then you'll say, Hare Krishna. <laughs> We're always looking for excuses to say, Hare Krishna. <laughs> yeah. Probably I'd li really like to hear more about the mentorship. Um, what does it take to be a mentor and who can be a mentor? Well, anybody can be a mentor if they're um, good at something and they're willing to impart the knowledge they have to you. Uh, just on a personal level, I have God brothers, God sisters that I, I see and uh, others uh, from all generations, that, whom I, I find something extraordinary about. And then I reach out to them. In the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, Tadvidi pranipatene pariprashnena sevaya upadakshantite jnanam jnaninas tadpadarshina. Starting from the level of being a mentee, means that you're taking guidance, then you should be humble. Uh, one should be humble. And approach in a mood that I don't know anything, please help me. And Pranipat means actually prostrating yourself. So that mood can be there. 
when you want to gain something uh, from someone, some special quality they have. And then there's asking relevant questions. And when we practice Krishna consciousness intensely, then we'll have good questions. Questions are the answer. If you don't practice your instrument, if you're a practicing musician, then you won't have questions for your teacher the next time you meet them because you haven't run into any snags. But when you practice a lot, then you'll say, oh, I can get this far, but how do I get over this? And so it's important to have relevant questions for the mentor. And you'll find mentors that way also because if you're always loaded up with good questions, then eventually you're going to run into somebody who can actually answer them. And we find that when somebody holds forth who is noticeably um, spiritually potent, then people start bringing out all their questions that, that they've kept in their pockets for a long time because they realize, oh, this person can answer them. And that might be an indication of somebody who could become a mentor. And then finally, uh, render service. The wisdom of the child bringing an apple to school and putting it on the teacher's desk is sound and it's from the Bhagavad Gita. That's uh, serve those whom uh, you admire, who have qualities that you like to imbibe. And when you do, then their hearts open up and they want to give you something because of, of that feeling. Yes? So what is the difference That's okay. So what is the difference between, say, you know, a shiksha guru and a mentor? What's the difference between a shiksha guru and a mentor? Just, just the name. It's just degrees. We give these uh, particular labels. Um, they do mean something, but you have to make them mean something. So just, it's like if somebody accepts a shiksha guru, there's uh, ways to go about it where you would, um, according to Narahari Sarkar Thakur and Jiva Goswami, if you have a guru, then you'd tell your guru, I found somebody that's uh, really uh, brilliant and I'd like to hear some things. And then uh, when you've gotten the nod from your guru, then you're supposed to go hear it and then bring it back to your guru and say, this is what I learned. In other words, Narahari Thakur Sakur, Sakar says, then when a son goes out to beg on behalf of the father, and then he doesn't keep it all. He brings it back to his father and says, here it is, and, and gives it. So then there's this sense of continuity. And uh, a shiksha guru could also be a mentor, or you could call a mentor a shiksha guru, or vice versa. Shiksha just means somebody gives a gives instruction, but there are, there are more or less uh, formal relationships, and that really depends on the person that you're talking with. Uh, there are different ways of installing deities. There are ceremonies that you go through to install the deity, or there's also a process of installation for a deity where you just keep worshiping the deity regularly, and after some time everyone says, deities installed. <laughs> because you didn't stop ever worshiping the deity in the same way. And the same thing with mentors, they, the relationship can, as, over time can become more and more thick as you realize this person's really helping me and I have a heart-to-heart -heart relationship, then it can become more 
formal. It's just like Arjuna at Kurukshetra. He was talking to Krishna, just basically complaining in the first chapter. Uh, and then he said, enough of this. I want to take your instruction. I take shelter of you completely. Please instruct me. So those who may seem like uh, friends in our life also may become uh, shiksha gurus. When, when the relationship and the need becomes more serious and we realize that they can help us. Sometimes we don't even know until we start to realize under pressure that somebody has something that I really need. Hope that helps. Yes, Prabhu. Oh, sorry. I'm new to this this ceremony, so maybe I <laughs> pardon me if my question is not very soft. Uh, so. Um, my one question which kind of bothered me was just from my perspective that we were talking about initiation and its importance and I've always struggled with like what it means for me because because we have our family historic traditions and you know as Brahmin, Brahmins and we have our own traditions so it's and it is not it's kind of unheard of to kind of switch traditions and things like that so how do you how do you envision the blending of the externals of the initiation and kind of following through on our historic traditions and not breaking that lineage that goes through that was one question maybe specific to me and then the second yeah Lots of historical incidents. Uh, for instance, Gopapata Goswami uh, was from a family of Sri Vaishnavs. This is disappearance today. Hare Krishna. Sri Gopapata Goswami Ki We pray for him uh, for special mercy today. Hare Krishna. He was from a Sri Vaishnava family. His uh, father met um, Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Their whole family, you know, became followers. He especially became an acharya in the Gaudiya Vaishnava tradition, and there are many, many more. So uh, there's a there's um, a distinction between a, for instance, a family Vaishnava initiation. It's been passed down from grandfather to, then generally that's a semblance of the uh, Vedic process when you receive upanayanam as a young man who are you're just uh, at a certain age the father will utter the Gayatri mantra into the ear of the son and give the uh, the thread and instruct him to chant a certain number of times a day at the sandhyas and this is uh, a family tradition and, and it's passed down actually in the present age the Vedic system is as I said a semblance because it's not really practiced in this age. In this age the Vedic system isn't practiced because nobody's qualified for it. Someone say wait a minute hold on how come we're not qualified? Well first of all because nobody or I should say very few people in the world pr perform the Garbhadhan Samskar which means at conception they actually uh, do the ceremony in full consciousness to bring a, a Krishna conscious child into the world 
or uh, in the case of those in a Brahminical setting to bring a person in the mode of goodness. And what's more, then the, the children would grow up in a, a pristine environment in the Gurukul. That means no cell phones and memorize all the Vedic mantras together. And th th there's a big difference. But that doesn't happen in this age because the uh, environment is altogether polluted. According to Srimad Bhagavatam, in this age, manda sumanda matayo, manda bhakya hipadrata, everyone has really bad ideas. <laughs> that's a bad idea, and that's worse. And, <laughs> and therefore, there is a pancharatric system through which uh, one takes initiation. Pancharatra is a system, uh, it's an abbreviated Vedic system meant for this, uh, meant for this age. And the mandras are passed down from great sages like Narada Muni. And they come down to us uh, in a form of uh, practice that we can apply in our lives. As I mentioned in the Pancha-Samskar system, after you take mantra, these are esoteric mantras that uh, connect you to the deity and through, whom, through which you're able to worship the deity and so forth. So typically, uh, somebody who's taken a, a Vaishnav initiation in the family then would, at a certain time, if such a person is spiritually inclined, would become attracted to a Vaishnava guru and then uh, would take all the Pantratric mantras and also would take shelter. And there's no contradiction ultimately because all the Sampradayas are working towards the same goal, which is to surrender to Vishnu. And the, the mood is the same in that way. So Srila Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur at his flagship temple in Navadvip, you'll find his uh, beloved deities, uh, Radhakrishna deities, and then around them he has the four sampradayas uh, represented. But if somebody uh, already received this, uh, the Vaishnav initiation in a particular sampradaya, then there's no need for them to, to change uh, necessarily. They can take up the chanting of Hare Krishna and continue with the tradition that they have. And in Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's uh, tent, everybody's welcome. And Chaitanya Mahaprabhu himself had mentioned to um, the brother of, of Rupa and Sanatan that you should chant Hare Krishna, join our Sampradaya. And he thought about it all night and he came back the next day and said, can't do it. <laughs> I'm too attached to Raghunath. I, I can't take my head away from his lotus feet. And Mahaprabhu was delighted that he was so attached to, to Sri Ramachandra. I hope that helped. Do you want to ask the second question? Others can ask if they want to. Okay. Oh, yeah. So Prabhu, I always find this thing very confusing. What is the difference between low self-esteem and humility? What's the difference between low self-esteem and humility? Yeah. Humility means to align oneself with the order of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. And Prabhupada asked this question, was Arjuna humble when he went out to fight everybody? And he was fierce. He, he was slaying the enemy right and left. And so Prabhupada says, is that humble? Often in corporate audiences, I'll talk about humility and people say, yeah, but you'll never get ahead. But Arjuna got ahead 
<laughs> and there's the humility actually means to put Krishna's instruction bef before your own uh, whimsy or desire, what I want. And this is what we find in the Bhagavad Gita when Arjuna said, okay, it's not about me anymore. Because the beginning, it's all about what, what's going to suit him. He's saying, I, uh, you know, I'm not going to get anything out of this because once I kill the enemy, which is my family, they're the ones I w that were going to glorify me. Like, after your parents die, I can say this, my, both my parents left, and the mind immediately goes, who am I going to show this to now? <laughs> Mom, Dad, that, look what I got. I brought home a puppy, you know, and it's like, they're all, yeah, great. So when, when we no longer are thinking about our own satisfaction or how, what am I going to get out of this, and we're dedicating ourselves to the order of the Supreme Personality of Godhead, this is actually humility because it's it's not my desire it's Krishna's desire and I take that up low self-esteem means that I have a sense that I'm not in the center enough and I'm not I I can't get enough uh, glorification and whenever something goes wrong then I feel like uh, I'm I'm sad because I'm not showing up in the right in the way I had hoped that everyone would look at me and say wow you're really great. And when a devotee is dedicated to the order of the Supreme Personality of Godhead, then win or lose, or however he or she shows up, they're not concerned because they're offering all the results to Krishna. And they, they, want, it, uh, they want to please Krishna. So uh, low self-esteem is enervating. It takes away our energy and it makes us dysfunctional, whereas actual humility aligns us with Krishna's direct will and is empowering and, and puts us in a position to overcome all obstacles because we're depending on Krishna and on our own power. I just have a small So, you know, uh, they always say that devotees should, should always think about themselves, that I am... I'm lower than everybody else. I'm not doing as good enough as I should be doing. And how do we save ourselves from going into the self low self-esteem zone? You know, uh, we, they always say that devotees should be humble, should be thinking that everybody else is better than me. So that, that's where I get confused. Can you clarify that point yeah, a little bit more? It's a little bit of a paradox, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah. And, and Chaitanya Mahaprabhu mentions this when he tells Sanatana Goswami about the nine symptoms of bhava. And uh, one of the symptoms of bhava is that even though you're making advancement, or as you're making advancement, you feel yourself less qualified. And um, in the uh, Sri Brihat Bhagavatamrita, Sanatana Goswami mentions uh, a term, danya, uh, danya. And dainya means extreme humility. And he says that as prema increases, uh, so does dainya proportionately, because uh, the two go together. So Mahaprabhu comments when he tells Sanatana Goswami about this, that although the devotee is becoming more and more qualified and expert in everything, uh, they are thinking, they do it right, they think, that I'm 
I'm actually not very qualified. It doesn't mean, however, that the person retreats from service or doesn't do the service well. But the devotee actually becomes more and more aware that the Krishna is working through me. I'm not actually doing anything. So, there's a famous verse um, that uh, I know, Shukadev knows, Vyasadev may or may not know the meaning of the Vedas, even though he's the one speaking them. And the implication is that there's a way in which Krishna works through his devotees. So a devotee who becomes uh, aware of this is very humble and thinking, why me? I'm, I'm insignificant. As Prabhupada would always say, it's not me, it's my guru. And that's what all gurus point to. They say, I, look, I, I'm, just a, you know, I'm just being used as a conduit. And so the devotee doesn't think I'm doing anything except following the order of their guru. And because of that, Krishna's energy is coming through. So they don't claim anything to be theirs. In fact, devotees, in times when there's great gain, they think, oh, Krishna gave me way too much. I didn't deserve any of this. And when there's loss, they think that uh, Krishna took away things just to keep me sober. Whereas a materialist, when they gain something, they think, I'm so smart, I don't need God. Look what I just did. And when they lose something, they think, there must be no God, because how could he be so cruel to somebody so good as me? <laughs> and so that's, you know, a new, so there's some nuance there as far as the, the mood of, of the devotee. Hare Krishna. Last chance. Yes. Thank you. Um, the previous question reminds me of certain moments that I have where I'll have these like humility, these humble moments, but then I'll notice that I'm in that mood and I'll notice that that just occurred. And when I notice myself noticing, it feels like I just canceled the whole thing out. Like <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to get anything out of this because it's, there's like some type of small arrogance. And when that happens, I like to think that Krishna is in my heart and not in my head, but I wanted to know from you, how, how would you, deal with something like that. That's a very astute and advanced uh, observation that you have. Yeah. In the Brihat Bhagavatamrita, there's a mention of how when you have a realization that you know is profound, because we know it when we connect in some way. It can be just a small way where you realize, oh, I actually am sincere. I actually do want to surrender. He said, any revelation you get, you should keep it hidden, even from your own mind. Because <laughs> the mind's like, meh, 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 meh. And, you know, don't go broadcasting it. And Mahaprabhu, he, f he would regularly faint in ecstasy. And when the devotees revived him once, you know, he said, did I say anything? What did I say? And they said, oh, you know, you were saying these wild things. And it was some kind of ecstasy they were in. He said, he said actually, it was just a show. He said, any ecstasy you see from me, this, this is just my show. I'm just trying to show the world how I'm actually advanced. So devotees are very careful to protect themselves from this uh, false ego that wants to appropriate everything. 
a little, a little false ego. Sometimes I think of him like a little Caesar, about this big, got a turban on, he's sitting there with a scepter, and you know you have to go under him. So when you become very, very humble, you know you can just like slide underneath and get past him. So it's recognizing the mind, seeing it, and then remembering to stay humble. Prabhupada was really careful about exhibiting ecstatic symptoms. A couple times he couldn't check it. Once in Mayapur, during Jai Radha Madhava, he was stunned, 1975. And a, a couple other incidents. Otherwise, he was very sober. He, he kept it to himself. Raghunath Das Goswami talks about Manmanak um, Shiksha, about how, as you pointed out, this recognizing one's own advancement or you see something and then you start to like think of yourself as entitled entitlement is the enemy of humility and gratitude and and he said he compared that the appearance of that false ego trying to appropriate that as the stool of a hog so you may or may not know this, but hogs eat stool. I hate to announce it here during the ceremony, but that's the facts. And, and then, of course, they pass, so what's that? So there's this uh, sense of abomination that one develops when one becomes more and more sensitive. And that's a good thing, to be aware of that. And just take shelter of what Queen Kunti says said, don't fall for any of these entitlements, entitlement packages where you say, okay, you're, you're good looking, so hey, you can get by. You deserve more than most people. You're learned, you're wealthy, etc. She says, stay a kinchana. Kinchana means something, and a kinchana means I have nothing. I'm the runt of the litter. I was the one who was left out. I never got a drop. And if you stay in that mood and serve, then you get everything. And that's kind of a paradox too. But this is an astute realization. Okay. I just real quick, something related to that. Is that okay? So this this idea about not if there's any kind of revelation or any kind of like feeling of um, growth or progress. That to keep that sake, like to keep that, you know, protected, and then we hear some of our, the acharyas, for instance, like um, um, like Rupa Goswami put together Padyavali for like the the benefit of his friends, like to be able to share these poetries. Um, Ananda Vrindavan Champu, uh, Kavi Karnapur, he writes at the beginning, I've I've written this book for the pleasure of my friends. So what, could you speak to the dynamic of what does that look like in being able to share like our, our victories and our, our kind of growths and our challenges with friends, like what that dynamic's like? Well, one thing, Prabhupada used to quote Chanakya Pandit, and one thing he quoted about Chanakya Pandit was, he said, never, Chanakya Pandit said, never reveal your net worth to people, but rather let them figure it out for themselves by the way you live. So there's a way in which, when we have spiritual assets, let other people figure it out by the way we live. And if you happen to write about them, of course, 
devotees are careful when they write. They write for self-purification and they, you know, write in a very humble way. As you'll find the Krishna's Kaviraj Goswami, obviously, he's an empowered representative of Lord Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. He, he writes about himself, I'm lower than worm and stool. And he feels like that as, as he's approaching the matter. But he's doing his duty. Uh, the Vaishnavas often say that I'm, I shouldn't say any of these things, but I've been ordered. I have to say it because such and such told me, my master told me that I have to do it. So I'm saying it. And it's not me anyway. Even Chaitanya Mahaprabhu did this. You'll notice when he's giving any instruction and someone says, wow, bravo. And he says, it's not me. I got it from Sarvabhom Bhacharya. I heard it from anything I know. I heard from Ramananda Roy. <laughs> so there, there's never a time at which the, the Vaishnava will take credit except when it's service. So you'll notice that Srila Prabhupada, he claimed the title uh, Founder Acharya, but that was for service, and he insisted upon it. So somebody was got an outside influence, like Prabhupada's not really the Founder Acharya. He's, he's one amongst many, and actually it goes back to others, and, and some of the young devotees heard that, so they started getting lax about a Prabhupada's position. And so in one of the books they published, they just put A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami and none of his uh, titles. And uh, Prabhupada noticed it and he insisted upon it. But that's a case of putting oneself forward and saying, I have to be recognized because he knew that an inst the, the institution wouldn't hold without having a, 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 that point clarified that there has, to be, there has to be a nucleus who's the center. Hope that helps. Oh, uh, this is a technical detail type question, but I was having a discussion with someone else. You know, when uh, gentlemen get initiated, it's very clear what their their title is going to be. Das. With ladies, sometimes I always see Devi Dasi or Dasi, and. I couldn't answer like why it's one or the other. <laughs> I had no idea. It, it's um, just part of the title that glorifies the person, and sometimes it's hyphenated with the name if it's a female name. Uh, if it's not hyphenated when it's a name of Krishna because he's not Devi, but Devi just means like a, a brilliant goddess-like personality, and it, it's really up to the discretion of of the. Uh, person who's giving the name. So Prabhupada did both. And uh, sometimes it has to do with how the name sounds. If it sounds better with the Devi in front of it. Prabhupada? <laughs> Hare Krishna. The other day I was listening to um, a discourse you gave about goals and like some powerful advice to accomplish them and one of them you said was visualizing your goal so I've been visualizing you coming back to Ypsilanti <laughs> and I'm a simple person so I'm thinking well you like book distribution so I was wondering how many Bhagavad Gita's do we need to distribute for you to come back here
you know, we can't go everywhere because it's not physically possible. And still, uh, you know, we, our home base is this kind of Silicon Valley. And uh, that's, you know, where we live. And uh, so, you know, years ago with this kind of Silicon Valley, when it was a fledgling uh, organization, I got more involved. I was trying to stay aloof. <laughs> But somehow they dragged me in, and uh, then I put my mind there uh, to... Actually, the way it happened was somehow they asked me to come in, and they said, hey, could you help with book distribution? I said, sure. We didn't talk much more about that. But then some report came out from the GBC, and the temple president had filled out the categories. And one of the categories about Iskand Silicon Valley, the, the book distribution was national and they had my name next to it, and then it said D, as in A, B, C, D, like you get in school. They put a D, and I said, you put a D next to my name? We haven't even... So then I became... I said, okay, well, the gloves are off now. And so uh, we, were, we worked at it because I, I felt like I was going places, and how could I uh, speak to communities and say that you know, you should do it this way because book distribution is good and, you know, you can do it and actually it helps the organization unless we had done it there. And so, uh, you know, after some time when I could see that we were making really good progress, then we started exporting the ideas to other places and we could see they're making really good progress. And so, as I said, we can't go everywhere, so how do we choose? We have a system called Most Likely to Succeed as a triage. And so there's a way in which when we do talk about book distribution as a particular aspect of the community, one of the seven purposes that, that a community, that the community leaders and members want to expand, then when we have that discussion, the, the most likely to succeed list contains a place where the GBC, the temple president, and the main leaders are all in agreement that there's a, a reasonable next goal to reach. And so generally when we come someplace and then we say, you talk about book distribution, you'd say, okay, what's the next goal to hit? And if you hit the goal, then there's something that really, uh, I mean, everywhere is ecstatic and blissful. This is more than ecstatic and blissful. There's perfect, more perfect and most perfect. This one's on the top level on that, from that aspect. But from practical, like when are you coming back kind of thing, it's like, okay, what's the next goal? And do you have the will to hit it? And if you hit it, then there's a reason practically to come back and say, okay, we'll come back and then we'll, we'll work on that even more. So that's the discussion we would have later. Practical, right? <laughs> I don't know where I'm supposed to speak into, but I just have a quick comment. Um, my family is Native American, and one of the things that uh, the lodge leader or whatever, they're, they're called an interpreter for the spirits, and that is a big thing about the ego. And the same thing, I work with plant medicine, and, and, um, and so I'm an interpreter for the plants. And I think that's a big one about the ego stuff and the humility and um, 
where you get a lot of people that will, will say, oh, I am the guru, or I am the, the sweat lodge leader, and I am, and I am power, and, and very much like, like that is them not stepping in where they're supposed to be stepping in, like they're only an interpreter, you know, and so I just wanted to share that. Yeah, such an important point. Mm-hmm. There's a sociologist named Michel, and he wrote The Iron Laws of Oligarchy. Michel's Iron Laws of Oligarchy state that when people get some kind of powerful position where they're administering something or uh, overseeing something, then rather than do their duty, they start consolidating power so they can stay in power. There's a sociological law he stated. He called it the iron laws of oligarchy. And this is a human tendency that uh, those who are practicing Vaishnavism and any other progressive way in, to connect to the spirit uh, need to keep in mind that we can't get in our own way. And we lose the very purpose of what we're doing when we let the ego get involved and say that, oh, now I have to stay in power. And paradoxically, those who are uh, detached from the idea of being the center and who are very humble are uh, typically more empowered because they are a clear conduit and they're able to actually bring a, a, such an energy forth that people feel it. And they become what we call self-effulgent. It's not a matter of being appointed to anything although somebody might be appointed to something, but it's a, more a matter of the person actually has a, a purity of, of purpose, and therefore the message comes through even stronger. You'll find that uh, Pritu Maharaj, in one of his uh, prayers, has mentioned that those who are pure in heart, pure motive, when they speak, the sound vibration has more effect. And the way he puts it poetically is that the sound that comes from the mouth of a pure person touches Krishna's lotus feet. And Krishna's lotus feet are anointed typically with saffron particles, or, or saffron as applied, because it's a very sublime kind of spice and we offer it to the deity. Sometimes it's ground up in paste and sandalwood. And you put a little saffron, not too much, just a little bit. Otherwise, get everything red and tiny little bit of camphor, real camphor, edible camphor. And then you apply it to the Lord's feet with a little flower petal. So now when the sound vibration comes from the mouth of a, of a, a person of a pure heart, it touches Krishna's lotus feet and it dislodges the saffron and it mixes with the sound vibration. So it, it is said by Krita Maharaj that the voice of someone in that condition is mixed with saffron mercy particles. So then when it goes into the ear, one feels a definite change of heart. And this is reasonable because sound carries consciousness. And you'll notice and that when somebody speaks, they reveal through the tone of voice, the quality of their voice. We're living entities, right? Raise your yes. hand if you're a living entity. Wow, we got some robots in here. So, so we're very sensitive. We can pick up these subtleties, actually. And so we notice, uh, we can notice things like purity of intention. We can pick up on it if we're very uh, um, tuned into that. Okay. 
Yes. Hi, thank you for taking my question. Um, I was just wondering, I know how important it is to have, um, like to do well in your work. And I was just wondering if you could give me some guidance in um, how to tell if you are in the right work setting. Such a practical and very helpful question. Thank you. The, the Srimad Bhagavatam gives some uh, overarching advice about the way to work, the way to live. Kamasya nendriya pritir labo jivete yavata jivasya tapva jignasya narto yascheha karmabi. Says you should organize your life in such a way that the work that you're doing is complementing your spiritual practice. And if it overtakes your spiritual practice or becomes um, so prominent in your life or so demanding, I should say, that you don't have time to practice, then the Bhagavatam says you've got it backwards. So start, said, with the foundation of your spiritual practice because work is meant to maintain you so that you can practice. Because the Bhagavatam is very practical. It says everybody has to work. There's no question that it's like, I'm going to just drop out because we have to maintain our bodies. We have to uh, have, we have social connections that we have to maintain throughout most of our lives and so forth. So we have to attend to those. But it says, make sure that you're doing it uh, based on the, the ultimate goal, which is to achieve uh, spiritual consciousness. So if, if you can find some work that complements uh, a spiritual practice and a lifestyle, it gives you time for it. And also it's in an environment that is peaceful enough or not disturbing to you so that you can stay in a spiritual practice. Then that's the best, says the Srimad Bhagavatam. And interestingly, when you do have a spiritual practice, then you tend to be more expert at your uh, regular work. For instance, let's take an accountant. What if you call your accountant and you say, okay, could you tell me how I'm doing? The la how did I do the last quarter? He said, I really don't know because I was intoxicated. <laughs> and I'm not sure. In fact, I can't even find the, the ledger right now because uh, right now I'm high. <laughs> then, <laughs> you'll fire that person. <laughs> because they're incompetent. They can't keep their mind on it. And there are various uh, ways in which people amend their lifestyle when they get serious about spiritual life so they, they can be adroit, so that they, they can work more expertly in the world so that they have, they're more efficient there so they can have more time for their spiritual practice. A good example is Bhaktivinoda Thakur. He was really expert, obviously. He wrote over 100 books. He wrote thousands of poems and songs, and every one of the songs is a hit, better than the Beatles. <laughs> and then, and uh, he was also a high court judge. And at that time, the zeitgeist in India was that there was a, a ruling party that the British were there, and you know they tried to pick people from amongst the indigenous people to to, to rule, but you know, for certain jobs, they, um, they needed people who were super expert and also could balance everything. 
uh, between their loyalty to the, the you know the throne and and also do their jobs. And so they picked Bakhtimino Takur for many jobs. They wanted him everywhere because he was so expert. And he's one of the top devotees, the Vaishnavs in our line, one of the teachers. And he's noted for uh, his work as a high court judge. He solved uh, more cases because he did them faster. And he had the lowest rate of reversal because a lot of cases get reversed in, in, on appeal. But his didn't because he was so expert, he didn't write. So he would go home early and he would take rest early and wake up in the middle of the night, sometimes when most people go to sleep around midnight. And then he'd do his spiritual practice. I'm not advising you, you did this. <laughs> but then there, there's this, the point is that he was super expert. And it's because of his spiritual practice. I mean, he was an expert person, but he showed the example. Plus, he had 10 kids. So you can, here's my main point. When you, when you have a, a base practice in your life, or I should say, as your base, you have a spiritual practice, then all your other work becomes more clarified because you make decisions about what kind of work to do based on how it's going to affect my spiritual practice. And when you make decisions like that, you'll never go wrong. Even if it's the wrong decision, Krishna will make it right again, eventually. It's uncanny, actually. And that's one of the things Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita. Which means that if you absorb your mind in serving me and make that your primary, then I'll make up for any other things. In fact, if you don't have time to do your regular work or social obligations, then I'll personally take care of it because your intention is to serve me. I know that was heavily weighted on, you know, do spiritual practice, but it's just, it's, it's reality. I gave up a lot of social connections, even when my family was here, but through my wife Nirakula, Nobody knew the difference because come holidays and things like that, she'd make sure that everything, the show went on. <laughs> that was Krishna's mercy. Yeah. <laughs> Prabhu, he's got a goal in mind, I can tell by the look in his eyes. It's summertime now and the the days are long and I don't have to work. And so it feels like, you know, very op there's a lot of optimism. Um, there's also a time of the year where the days are very short. And um, I'm personally very busy and I think this is, a lot of people feel this way. And it seems that, you know, day to day I have enough time to do my basic sadhana and attend to my material responsibilities and offer some boga to Krishna and do a little bit of reading. And that's the extent of my spiritual activities outside of whatever, like, prachar I exhibit in my, you know, material affairs. Um, and so I personally tend to feel down on myself, like, oh, this is all I'm doing. Um, so... What resolve can one have during those times 
when it seems like I'm not really doing much um, like that. I mean, I'm not going to wake up at midnight, so... (laughs) Not that I haven't tried something like that, but it just doesn't seem to work. When, when one feels overwhelmed by the feeling that I'm not doing enough, it's important to take stock of what you already have and what you're already doing now. Fortunately, there's much of that described in the Shastra. For instance, in the 11th canto of the Srimad Bhagavatam, did you know when Krishna's talking to Sri Uddhava, he, he mentions the 8,400,000 species of life, and he said, out of all of them, the humans are the best. He said, I like them the best. So cheer up, Krishna likes you. <laughs> if you're a human, it's like, hey, I'm a human. Krishna likes me. You can start there. And, that I, and then consider the fact that you're, you're, the basics that you're doing Krishna says in the Gita, Manushanam Sahasreshu Kashyad Yatiti Siddhaye, Yatatamapi Siddhanam Kashyan Mambeti Tafata. It's very, very rare that anybody takes to this to spiritual practice at all. They're really, they, 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 they're preoccupied with other things. He said, and of those who do, very few actually have a clear idea of Bhagavan, of worshiping me as, as a supreme. Most people have of very amorphous ideas of spiritual practice. So if you've come to that point, it's a rare, you're in rarefied company and territory. And if you take stock of that, it really helps. And also consider the fact that you, you know, just what you've done in this one lifetime already to come to this point and the service that you're maintaining, uh, maintaining your vows, doing your rounds, it's enough. If you just do that and you just survive, in fact, there's a section of the Bhagavatam that I, I go to and I remember frequently because I feel overwhelmed also. There's so many things to, to consider and, and often it's like, I'm not doing enough, I have to catch up. And in the verse 1014 the the speaker of the verse, Brahma, says, that if you live your life in Krishna consciousness and accept everything as Krishna's mercy, whatever comes, then you'll inherit the kingdom of God just by having that attitude. And then the great Srimad Bhagavatam commentator, Sridhar Swami, uh, from days of yore, says that uh, what's the duty of the son of a very wealthy man? What's the singular duty? Stay alive. Ask, call a friend. Stay alive. Carry on Stay alive. Two words. All you have to do is stay alive. See, if you're an heir, like some people say, hey, I'm an heir. What's the big deal? You know, I can afford it. If you're an heir, then your duty is to stay alive because and survive your, your, your father. <laughs> as mentioned in those times of primogenitor, means that you inherit, you know, the eldest son would inherit. So there's a way in which he says that we're all sons of the Supreme. And if you just stay in this mood that I'm a humble servant of the Lord, even if you're the one who's left out of the roll call 
no one really notices you, but you're always there doing your, your duty, even at, the, even at the most basic level. He says, if you stay alive like that, you'll inherit the kingdom of God. So when you feel overwhelmed and you think, like, God, not enough day left at the end of all my duties and things I wanted to do and maybe I'm not doing enough, just remember what the Bee Gees said all those years ago. Staying alive, staying alive. They were quoting that verse. Just remember to stay alive somehow or other. As, uh, you know, and that, you, we can do that. You could do that. To, uh, Srila Bhaktisiddhanta said, don't try to be a great devotee. Just try to be a good devotee. And so, you know, you, no heroics needed. If you just maintain the very basic things, it's far and above what anybody else is doing anywhere in the universe. And Krishna already likes you as a human. What to speak of if you're a devotee? Does that help? How do you like Hare Krishna Guru Maharaj. Um, you know, we're talking about humility and, and overcoming the false ego. And I've heard you talk about gratitude as being a tool to, you know, to develop humility. Can you talk more about how we can, um, you know, receive the association of the devotees and receive the mercy from Guru and also, you know, accept it with grace and, and uh, gratitude? How to be more grateful, he's asking. Well, there's two ways of looking at the world. One is that first say everything in the world is unique. There's not one particle in the universe that's the same as another. It's not one living entity that's the same as another. In fact, the, the name Vaisheshika refers to that because it comes from the root word Vishesha, which means special or specific. And it means to, uh, it's the name of Krishna actually, that everything in, about him and everything about all of his energies is unique and special. And if, if we become jaded, you know what the word jaded means? Yeah, it's like dull. You know where it comes from? <laughs> Can't get no respect. Uh, it comes, it, it, a jade is an old horse. It's run too many races, been beat too many times, and it's just like, meh. And, and so uh, we get jaded in the world when we forget the specificity of everything. And, we've, and we're not aware of how Krishna's mercy is flowing to us at every second. Mm -hmm. So clear awareness makes us grateful. When we rise above the, the sense, I said earlier that the opposite of gratitude is entitlement. When I think I deserve something, there's no possibility of being grateful. Think about it. Also, you consider that you can only have gratitude for a person because only if someone intended to give you something can you be grateful. If somebody walking down the street drops a $100 bill and doesn't know it and you pick it up, you can't be grateful to that person because they didn't intend to give it to you. Whereas if you tapped them on the shoulder and said, excuse me, you dropped this, and they say, keep it, you deserve it. Then you go, oh, I'm so grateful because there was an intention expressed. 
And in the, in the process of Krishna consciousness, what we're really doing is tracing out where the intention came from. Why is everything so special? Why is, it, why is my heart beating? Why am I able to breathe? And why is there air as a counterpart to my desire to breathe? And if we, if we look at reality and see actually what's taking place around us at every second, then uh, we'll have this sense that there's an intention behind the universe and we'll be able to be grateful. And we also have to be careful of this sense of entitlement and push it away. And that means to adopt the opposite, which is called the Akinchana principle. That I don't have anything. I don't have any qualification. I'm simply a, a recipient of, of the special treatment that I'm getting from somebody who cares about me. And that's what I'm describing as Krishna consciousness. It's a universal non-sectarian process where we just analyze our existential situation and see that we're being supported at every second. And then you have to logically trace it back to a person. Otherwise, there, and people do that minus the Bhagavan. So they're like, the universe just gave me a car. <laughs> <laughs> it did? Cool. You know, <laughs> but that's, it's getting there. We're getting there. Just take it a few more steps and find out that actually there's somebody behind that. And we just blatantly do that. We put up deities and say, that's him. That's the person. And everyone's going, wait, what? Really? Somebody's actually going to come out and say it? Because everywhere in the world people are hiding it. They don't want to come out and say it. Because that means, you know, like, what about me? And then accountability. Then you actually have to uh, appreciate and reciprocate with that. But it's not... As you find from the process of Krishna consciousness, as given by Lord Chaitanya, it's not hard. He says, just chant, dance, and feast. And that's the way of glorifying the Lord. Everyone okay? All right. Prabhu? All right. I mean, should we sure. commence? I mean, persona? Speaking of peace. Okay. Shari <laughs> Lova Musi Dunati Akejita Katita Shamshare Krishna Bodo Joyamore Kori Bade Chiwaja Shaprasharanadi Lova Namrita Pao Radha Krishna Guna Gao Premedako Shri Chaitanya Nita Sanya, 
Please come take Rashad over. <laughs> 